Hey, this is the DM Discourse, a podcast about D&D focused on the experience at the table from behind the screen. I'm your host, Daryl, and today we're continuing our playthrough of the N1 Against the Cult of the Reptile God AD&D Module by Douglas Niles. Oh, <laughs> this is the next episode of this subseries and part two of the dungeon delve of the module. So if you're up to date, you're in the right place. Otherwise, head back a couple episodes to catch up with what's going on. We last left our heroes exploring the hallways beneath the swamp where the vile spirit Naga, Explicita Defilus, plots all of her machinations. They interrogated Yuan-Ti, who had revealed the true nature of the villain they seek, and now it's up to them to finish what they came here to do, free the people of Orlane from her influence. there to say of blood? Plenty. The Edoans, those dragonborns as they are commonly called, say that when their god Edo fell from the heavens upon the earth, the races of dragonkind were made. From its splintered scales were the first of the dragonlords high rulers of wisdom and strength to guide those born of its blood, their lesser kin, to prosperity and fortune. However, even the term lesser is incorrect, although perhaps the closest we have in our Roelnan speech to use. As anyone who has spent time conversing with dragonkind can tell you, they do not view any within their origin grouping to be above or below others, for as they are able to be reborn in earthen clumps to experience life anew, one soul can spend a life a kobold servant, and the next an ascended scion. At least that's their belief. Countless scholars have dedicated their lives to researching Edoan regeneration. It's largely regarded as truth that dragonkind are born in earthen mounds, leading some credence to their mythological origins, but beyond further examination by Animancers, a school of study neglected entire by the Academia de Capital, there's little evidence to give these much credence in the field of magical studies. There is one unifying belief between all dragonkind as well, which is to say the utter loathing they hold for their impure relatives. This includes Yuan-Ti, Naga, other creatures closer to snakes than dragons in resemblance, but whose origins similarly go back to blood studies according to the archival records. As anyone who has spent time conversing with dragonkind could tell you, these creatures and all of their kind are thieves of their lineage. <sighs> sure. The prevailing theory has to do with studies of one archmage of the Edoan Empire, Nahur Athamon, who is suspected to have ruled the southern reaches of this continent somewhere around 800 BA, or before ascension, of the Prism Wizard, naturally. Where he retrieved his subjects is unknown, but the story goes that Nahur Athamon experimented with samples of blood from various dragon species on humanoid races, to varying results. The dragon lords of the time period took it upon themselves to cleanse Nur Athamon's keep of all the research he has conducted, so there is not to verify any theories we students with a passing interest may have concocted in the late evenings, imbibing coral bone and pax swill. It doesn't help that the fortress that once served as Athamon's home, Fen's Keep, is now rife with brigands and criminals. There's no denying that these particular creatures are real, either. 
UNT and Naga both have reported sightings in the southern area, now called the Drifting Isles. Given the current political climate, I doubt I will see any advancement of the study done, at least in my lifetime, and will simply contend myself with travelers' tales of dangerous hisses and rattling scales in the dark nights in that swampland. Siri Keenfall, Lady of House Keenfall, Amateur Arcane Historian. The Dungeon of Explicita Defilus is a big dungeon. It won't surprise you to learn that my players don't explore all of it, nor should they feel obligated to. I know there's a nagging sensation in the brains of at least one of them that compels them to want to try and explore every possible nook and cranny, and if that's how it is with your party, feel free to accommodate them. But if you so happen to have a group that doesn't need to know every tidbit of information about the dungeon, and is happy to continue along a critical path, that's just as well. What I think is most important when it comes to dungeon exploration is the assurance of player agency. They're going to look at the maps and the graph paper and wonder about what danger is lurking around the undrawn corners and doorways. So let them wonder, let them discover, and reveal what they wish to find out about. The party didn't want to find out what was elsewhere in the dungeon right now, though. After a long day's trek and a couple of rough encounters, they were ready for a well-earned night's rest. But as the die fell, we knew that wouldn't be the case. The random encounters in N1 rely on a roll for a d6 on every third turn, but I don't think I'd run the module this way or even use something that like that down the road. I feel like these old school modules are already chock full of encounters, so I don't need to worry about them running into trouble. Instead, I just had them do a check while resting. They had some good thoughts, too. They wanted to set up illusions in front of the door, making it appear as if it was stone. Unfortunately for them, no one had that capability, so they opted to just rest in the front room, keeping an eye on the door. They were interrupted by a group of giant lizards who came over after all the commotion with the Yuan-T. Not a difficult fight, but the group decided that resting in a mostly open space was a bad move. They ducked into one of the back rooms the lieutenants were using and were able to regain their coveted hit points. They set off from there down the southern passage, tracing along the wall until they came upon the secret room that Jarvis had told them about, the UNT fighter they had let go the previous session. He had been telling them the truth as well. They found it at the end of the passage, and a raft big enough for their group to get across the crocodile pool. There were no doors in this room, and a shallow pool with crocodiles in its depths. Luckily for the party, the crocs didn't disturb the boat as they made it across. They stayed in it as well. Had they disturbed the waters, it would have become a much more exciting encounter. They came to the intersection that was at the end of the first layer of the dungeon. One direction led to a muddy den, a tight, wet lair they weren't keen on exploring. This actually had a giant weasel protecting creatures they could have collected, but instead they chose to explore the other directions. There wasn't anything down one, just a dead end, so they took the other, longer hallway that led to a set of barred doors. On the other side was a familiar enemy. Troglodytes. No need to spare innocence here. The troglodytes were laid low in a few rounds, in what was largely an empty room with a few scattered coins. Before we move on to the next room, I wanted to visit the eastern side of the dungeon, which went completely unexplored by the party. If they wanted, they absolutely could have gone back across the crocodile pool and took a look at what dangers awaited them. When you boil it down, the dungeon just has three different hallways you can take that meet up towards the end of their midsections, and then after crossing the pool, leads them directly to the lower level, almost directly. I think this is a great dungeon. No matter the path they pick, they're bound to run into some danger and excitement. On the eastern path, there was a green slime, 
rooms of human cult members and some other rooms containing the stuff they needed to keep living down here, supplies. At the end of it all, a pseudo-boss fight with a harpy, with a great hoard of gems for the party to collect should they prove victorious. That's not what happened, though, and that's okay. If you see the content that excites you, you can always drop hints to your players about what awaits them going in a particular direction, but don't feel bad if they decide, Nah, man, I want to go fight these frogs! What's important is that these pieces of the adventure came together for the party to experience and craft their own story. Plus, there's nothing to say you can't use the same ideas here on a dungeon later on, that you could even create. Once you've seen a dungeon and got a good idea of the layout you want to do, all you really need to do afterwards is jam those rooms chock full of the stuff you like. You can get some great studying done by looking at other dungeons, and eventually all that knowledge just collects in an oversized file in your brain to start making your own. Plus, it's just fun making dungeons. Let's move on to the second level, though. This section opens up with a new description. These aren't carved hallways like the first floor, but instead muddy tunnels. Here there's timber supporting the ceiling. Trickling water is accompanied by a horrid stench. It even comes along with a grosser table of wandering monsters, should your party decide to spend some extra time exploring. That's just as useful as a tool of random uh, overland tables. You can give each layer a dungeon its, like, its own unique flavor by customizing not just the contents of the room and the descriptions thereof, but by also what creatures they can expect to run into. By some strange turn of events, the party ended up going to the most direct path leading to Explicita Defilus. There's a back entrance on the other side of the floor requiring them to go through anywhere from two to seven different rooms, complete with a boat that leads into the Naga's Lair. The alternate approach is much more direct, a series of finished rooms that end in a secret doorway leading straight to the front entrance of her lair. The second level brings the players to a large, muddy cavern. A set of stepping stones show them a path forward from here, but even then there's three ways out. Far to the left is a giant spider's lair. You can detect a recurring theme of just giant creatures, and they certainly take up a sizable chunk of the monster manual towards the end of it. Uh, and if the group proceeds in a northwesterly fashion, it'll lead to a series of monster rooms and subset of caverns with a veritable troglodyte clan. Like I said earlier though, the party ended up avoiding most of these dangerous locales by cutting right from the entrance, southeast, and then left at an early fork taking them to the finished rooms of this floor, started with the aptly named uh, Chamber of the Dead. I'm looking at the script now and I figure it's a good time to talk about what I do for leveling up and XP tracking. Um, flat out, I don't. Every creature the party fights has an XP value associated that can be divided and awarded to players, but it's not something I do at my table these days. If anything, I just opt to do milestone leveling, so that if they hit a particular story beat or mastery over their current skill set, I'll have them level up. That's not to say that crawling through all of these dangerous rooms on the alternate path wouldn't have given them some kind of tangible reward, or perhaps an early level up prior to their showdown with Explicit Defilus. I just thought... Now's as good a time as any to tell you that you don't have to worry about tracking experience points down to the smallest value um, if you don't want to, or you can even just reward them chunks by finishing quests. Something like the equivalent XP reward when they get back to town with the Naga's head and toe, for example. Which right now, they are hoping to do. The only creature in this room, swollen from moisture that permeates throughout the entire floor, is a central pillar smelling of death. It's not actually a pillar. Upon closer inspection, the party finds a coffer corpse. Visually, these things resemble zombies, but are the result of failed or incomplete death rituals. They're far deadlier, but also not included as part of the default set of monsters in the 5e monster manual. 
There's two ways you can quickly solve this, and we're going to cover both. The first is a quick internet search. In this day and age, there's literally hundreds of sources you can pull from, whether the DMs Guild or other third-party retailers that have their own supplemental monster manuals. There's also free stuff you can find if you do a quick search of Copper Corpse 5e. Within the first page, you'll get some homebrew options and varying levels of challenge for you to pick. Feel free to look over them for a few minutes, even if you find a creature you need to swap in at, on the spot. Your players shouldn't fault you if you need to take five minutes to just make sure that you're not going to send them to their deaths unknowingly. However, if you want to get creative, you can easily do this yourself by adjusting a few of the stats on a default monster's block. You can think of it as adding a template, like the way the monster manual talks about adding the shadow dragon template to any of the dragon options. So let's start with the base zombie, which wouldn't be a challenge for a second or third level party. I recommend giving it a higher armor class, 12 or 14 should be good, double or even triple its health if you have a particularly deadly group of players, and have it deal more damage. You could also take an ability from a different monster to give to our coffer corpse zombie, but let's try taking the ability from the module. Give it something like this. When the coffer corpse takes more than 6 damage in a single round, it falls as if dead. Let the players act on their turns without signaling really that the encounter is over. On the coffer corpse's next turn, it gets back up, and have everyone roll a DC 14 wisdom save against being frightened, as if casting the fear spell. And any creature that succeeds doesn't have to make that save again for the next 24 hours. The same rule applies as above, but now you'll also have players beating the hell out of it to make sure it stays down. Or maybe it only falls down when it takes that much damage once. You could also give it an ability that once it scores a hit on a character, the character is grappled, and the coffer corpse gets to do an extra 2d4 damage on every subsequent turn that the target is still grappled. See? Super easy. You do this once, you're going to be able to do it a thousand times, whether it's because you're running a module from a different edition, or the situation your players got themselves into doesn't quite fit the stat block you found in the book. Plus, you now have a starting point to make your own entirely homebrew monsters. There's some pattern to the math that we don't have to get into now that, ultimately, will start becoming clear to you so you know when to adjust to, uh, an encounter for the players, sometimes even the middle of a fight. It's one of those things that you'll get better at the more you play and the more you run the game. The following room contained the cells of the doomed, where a number of prisoners were kept. One of them, described as a prosperous merchant, I gave a big city air about him, unhappy to be here and unhappy to be out in the countryside in general. The party didn't take too kindly to this and ended up blackmailing him to help them upgrade their ship down the road if they ever took it to the city he was from, Ukesh. Spoilers, they go to Ukesh. They tell the prisoners they'll come back once they deal with the Naga and break the charm she has placed over the surrounding area. It's in the next room the party meets the fourth and final lieutenant of the Yuan-Ti cadre, Gareth Primo, an evil cleric more than happy to make these undead thralls for his master. There was no nuance of morality here, no attempts at converting one side to the other. I grabbed the priest NPC sheet from the back of the monster manual, and it was initiative. I also threw in the white that was supposed to be in the next room to this encounter, just to make it less one-sided against the cleric. A few rounds later, the players had thwarted the snake man and his sinister assistant, and proceeded to the altar of evil in the long row of rooms where the secret entrance to Explicita Defilus's lair was hidden behind the statue of herself, the reptile god. I didn't expect them to guess or expect that right off the bat, but they certainly did. With a bit of prying along the altar, they revealed the hidden passage that led them straight to their serpentine foe, coiled atop her horde of treasures taken from her victims. And we're going to leave it right there. There's a few more notes I wanted to make about this encounter and how I had set up some things that led into it, 
So in the next episode, we'll wrap up the printed text in the module and how I had an aftermath celebration for the party once they got back to Orlane. If you've been keeping up and are keen to look, the Spirit Naga challenge rating of, uh, has a challenge rating of 8, much higher than the players uh, are probably expected to be handling at this level, but I think the way I approached it will give you an idea about how you can plan for similar scenarios in your games without having to adjust the math on the fly. As always, feel free to email me at dmdiscoursepodcast at gmail.com. I want to start adding a Q&A, so if you have anything to ask, please do. Also, you can keep up with what I'm doing by following me on Twitter at dmdcpodcast. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the show on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave a review if you'd like, or tell a friend about the show. That helps me out to keep making content that you all enjoy. As always, appreciate y'all out there. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.